Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. If it's your first time here, well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and we cover the history of warfare from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. If you are enjoying the episodes, then pop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a second and it really helps us to get to everyone who loves history. In this episode, we have Professor Stephen Casey from the London School of Economics. Back in 2017, Stephen wrote the first comprehensive account of what American war reporters witnessed on their war beat in Europe during the Second World War. Now he's back with a new book, The War Beat Pacific, where he documents the American media at war against Japan. I learned so much from talking with Stephen about how the Pacific War was reported, why certain things were kept secret, and what the level of censorship was like, especially at the beginning of the war, and, of course, about the hardship that the journalists had to go through. I can only imagine what it was like turning up in the Pacific, on the front line, trying to figure out what is going on, and then to get that story back to your editor and get it on the front pages. And well, Stephen explains all of this, and it really is a fascinating history. Enjoy. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? How's your summer been? Great. Yes, they're nice and relaxing for the most part. Weather hasn't been too bad quite a lot of walking and trying to actually just get away from the rigours of academic life. Get away from the desk, get away from the Zoom meetings until I've dragged you back behind the screen to talk to me via Zoom to talk about your new book, Warbeat. I'm sorry about that. Not at all, not at all. No, it's it's a pleasure to talk about it. It was many years in the making and it feels a big relief now that it's finally out. It's actually the second part of a two part book. The first book came out in 2017 that looked at the European war and this one looks at the Pacific war. World War II I think was just too big to deal with in one volume so it feels like it's the end of a very long almost 10 year process of researching and writing so it's a big relief and it's very nice now to be able to just talk about it. 
Well, I'm excited to talk about it because your book takes a deep dive into the lives, the actions, the battles that the brave American journalists who covered the Second World War in the Pacific had to deal with. But like you say, your first book on this was on the European theatre. Was there much difference for the journalists going from those muddy fields of Europe through into the muggy, hellish, intense battles of the Pacific? Yeah, there was two points, actually. The first point, as I was writing the book, and it was meant to be dealing with the war as a whole, because in many respects, I think, and and Waldo Heinrichs, the great historian of World War II, from the American perspective, makes this point that actually you can't separate it. It was a global war in many respects for the Americans. But actually, when it came to the media coverage, I found that for the most part, it was two distinct wars. The actors, the military actors, were different. And to put it simplistically, in Europe, it was largely Eisenhower's army and the US Air Force. In the Pacific War, it was MacArthur's army and the US Navy. And MacArthur and Eisenhower had very contrasting views about publicity, and as did the Air Force and the Navy. So that was, I think, a key reason of separating it out. The other factor is that many reporters actually either covered one or the other, With one big exception, you get a number of reporters who are stuck in the Pacific Theatre in 1941-42 who get so exasperated with the difficulty of covering particularly the naval war because censorship is so strict that they then head off to Europe and they don't come back. Hang on, so they were so annoyed at the heavy levels of censorship that they just left the Pacific Theatre and went off to Europe. Was there less restrictions in Europe? It was more of just the absolute difficulty of covering the naval war, especially in that first period, really between Pearl Harbour and Guadalcanal, including Midway and the Battle of the Coral Sea, when naval censorship, for very obvious sort of operational reasons, was absolutely super strict. So, for instance, there was Bob Casey who covered the war, probably the most eminent of the figures covering the war for the Chicago Daily News. He is able to go on board with the fleet and he sees things like the start of the Doolittle Raid. He's there at the Battle of Midway. But when he comes back to port, he's not even able to report because the Navy's worried that the Japanese, because they might know he's with the fleet, if he's back in Hawaii, they will know that part of the fleet is back in Hawaii. So he wasn't even able to report when he got back on some occasions. and That drove him absolutely crazy. And his story on the Battle of Midway was held for quite a long time. And Casey's quite interesting because not only was he very eminent and very frustrated... But his boss, the boss of the Chicago Daily News, was also the Secretary of the Navy. And so he would complain about his treatment by the admirals in Hawaii, all the way back to the whole boss of the US Navy back in Washington, but with very little impact, actually. There was very little Frank Knox, the Secretary of the Navy, and the publisher of the Chicago Daily News could really do, because I think Admiral King and Admiral Nimitz had very obvious, clear reasons why they wanted to be so cautious about what made it into the public sphere. Hey, look, you've got to win the war. And so operational considerations come first. They come front and centre. And after surprise attacks at places like Pearl Harbour, you don't really want the Japanese knowing where your fleet is moving. And if you've got the reports coming out, like you say, you're going to be able to pinpoint on a map kind of where they've come from, where they're going and where they might be going next. But was there not a consideration by the powers that be that a lot of this maybe had to come out 
relatively quickly to show the American public that the pretty bad start to the war was going a bit better by the time we got through to Midway. Yeah, it's interesting because this constant pressure, and I think this is where what I think makes America actually much more interesting than, say, Britain, where, because, of course, America is a society that is much more open, the free press is much more aggressive, and there is, you're waging a war in a democracy. Questions are being asked in Congress as well, uh, much more aggressively than they're ever asked in the House of Commons in this period. And so there is quite a lot of pressure in that sense. And, of course, one of the key elements is budget. Obviously, the military services are getting whatever they require, pretty much, in 1942-43. But there's a fierce battle of resources about, should the Navy get more resources than MacArthur? Should actually more resources be sent to the Pacific? Should America have a Germany first or a Pacific first strategy? So there are all these various strategic questions that are being debated very vociferously. And of course, the extent to which military success can be portrayed is going to go a long way, not only to sort of quieting and improving domestic morale, but also making the political case that perhaps, say, the Navy needs more resources rather than Eisenhower and the Air Force in Europe. So all of these elements are there, and they become increasingly important by 1943, 44, 45. But it takes a while, I think, for the Navy really to break out, in particular, to become confident enough. Interestingly, by 1944, actually, the Navy quite wants the Japanese to know where it is because, of course, it now is so much more powerful. It's actually almost goading the Japanese to come out and attack it. But in 1942, the margins were the balance of forces after Pearl Harbor was so much in Japan's favour that actually operational security was paramount. It's an interesting point about inter-service rivalry, that ever-present aspect of warfare, and how the press could be perhaps used by the services to give them some good PR. Did the war reporters, war correspondents, did they know that they could be used in that role? Did some of them relish that? Did they go a little bit native, have an alliance, and allegiance to the services in which they were posted to? I think very much so. And I think this is one of the things that actually happens... So one of the major themes of the book and the first section of the book dealing with 1942-43 is called The Shrouded War. That actually, I found it incredible, actually how little the American home front was finding out about some of these major battles from Bataan to Midway and Coral Sea. Even Guadalcanal actually is largely shrouded in secrecy. But by 1944-45, that has changed. And part of what's going on is this rivalry between the services. And they are trying to court allegiance of reporters, but they all deal with it in their own sort of idiosyncratic ways. MacArthur being, I think, the most obvious example of somebody who really did openly go and court a palace guard of reporters, really would reward people who put MacArthur at the centre of the story. MacArthur's own communiques always mentioned one person, that was Douglas MacArthur. And the reporters that reinforced that MacArthur-centric message were very much the ones who tended to be rewarded with interviews with Douglas MacArthur and so on and so forth. So MacArthur was very much focused around him. The Navy takes a longer time to get going, but by 1944-45, for instance, as the Navy is building new bases in islands like Guam, one of the things it's going out of its way to do is to construct a bar for the reporters because the Navy, the US Navy is famously dry and 
War correspondents are famously not dry. They are very, very wet. And so it's one of the things that actually sticks in the craw of some of the reporters stuck on a ship at, for any length of time is there's no alcohol on board. So actually building a bar for the press camp on Guam in, in early 1945 was actually openly seen as a way of basically trying to attract reporters away from MacArthur to cover the Navy. Now in the middle, well not really in the middle, but sitting somewhere else are the US Marines. And the US Marines have always been much more publicity conscious than particularly the Army, but also especially the Navy. And so the US Marines from day one are, I think, quite keen on trying to provide much more publicity. When the Marines land on Guadalcanal in August 1942, they do so with not just civilian correspondents, but also their own Marine combat correspondents who are there to try and push stories and also to facilitate the work of the civilian correspondents. They don't want to get in the way. They want to sort of foster a close relationship. In 1942, they still come up against the US Navy, which controls the communications out of Hawaii and doesn't really allow many reports to get back. But as the war develops, the US Marines are very, very effective at creating a group of reporters. Uh, Bob Sherrod, who I talk about quite a lot in the book, Sherrod reported for Time and Life magazine and was one of the most influential reporters. And he lands on Tara in 1943. He lands on Saipan in 1944. He's there at Iwo Jima and Okinawa in 1945. And he builds up a very close rapport. And he's widely viewed as sort of the Marines correspondent, really pushing the Marine story. So that when you do get some of these real inter-service rivalries erupting into the public sphere, Sherrod is very, very openly making the Marines' case. It's fascinating that there is a a press battle going on within the broader battle, within the war, a war of information as well, that you've got to get your line out there, you've got to get your successes out there, or perhaps even maybe some of your needs and some of the struggles that are going on in these battles as well, to get that extra funding and the support you need. Now, you mentioned some of these key figures. What sort of person did you have to be to want to be a war reporter in these sort of situations. You mentioned a few, and in the book there's people like Ernie Pyle and stuff like that. Who are these people? What sort of personalities did they possess? One of the things I think they have, many of them are very experienced reporters by 1941-42, particularly because some of the key figures have grown up through New York and Chicago newspapers, and it's a very, very aggressive milieu that they're growing up in and sort of beating the rival to the story getting the best story getting the first scoop I think is part of that there is also interestingly for a lot of them an early part is a good example there's actually a large element of guilt that Pyle was actually initially at the start of the war thinking about okay he'll be a correspondent just for a few weeks before his draft number comes up and then he'll be drafted but by the time drafting became a realistic prospect for Pyle his reports are so important to portraying the US infantry in North Africa and subsequently when he's out in the Pacific, that of course the US Army has no incentive to turn Pyle into just a common or garden soldier. He's doing much more for the war effort and for the Army's effort as a war reporter. But there's still an underlying sense of guilt. When Pyle comes back to the United States for a period of leave in 1943, he doesn't want to go back. He's had the most horrific experiences of combat. And he's given lots of different options by his bosses, but he feels it's his duty to go back and report from the front. He wouldn't be able to live with himself. So I think there's this sense of actually duty to the reader and to the home front, because I think 
the fundamental fact of life, of course, is that, and this is what makes this war different from America's other wars, they do all ultimately bind to the call. So I've sort of emphasised to begin with some of these rivalries, but they do all bind to the calls. In the Pacific War, they all obviously constantly alluding to Pearl Harbour and the need to basically defeat the country that has inflicted Pearl Harbour on America. And so I think they are dragged in. And of course, some of them, of course, know that actually they're going to be drafted otherwise. So all of these things sort of go in and make it, I think, a very different climate and a very different set of governing principles for the war correspondence in the 1940s compared to I've written about both the Korean War and the Vietnam Wars. There are different pressures at work in those two subsequent conflicts. But they were by no means away from the action, were they? I mean, they were at Guadalcanal, New Guinea, Saipan, Iojima, Okinawa. They were there and they were on the front lines. They weren't back at base camp. They were at the forward operating bases. They were on the front line. They were there through the bloody battles, taking the pictures that needed to get back home. And many of them lost their lives. In your book, you say that I think 23 correspondents died and so many more sustained wounds. Was this something which they did as a routine? Were they always at the front, at the point where the action was happening? Was that the daily life of a war reporter in the Second World War? I think it's a good point. I think there's two elements of it. One thing I haven't mentioned, which I think is important, of course, is that reporters are all ambitious. What makes Ernie Pyle and Bob Sherrod is not quite as remembered in the same way as Ernie Pyle, but what makes these people big names is, of course, they are at the front. And so for the ambitious reporter, they know that to really make their name, you need to be in Normandy on D-Day. You need to be on Tarawa on D-Day. You need to be there in the thick of the action. This is what's going to get you the page one byline. So that's also a key element of it. But actually, interestingly, for a big chunk of the war, being on the beachhead, and of course this was both in Europe and the Pacific, often a war of amphibious landings, to be on the beach on D-Day wasn't always the best place for your boss because your boss had page one to fill. And a big problem, of course, on D-Day is communications. And also as well, in all of these operations, there is what information can we divulge to the public at the moment because we don't want to give away too many secrets to the enemy. So both in Europe and the Pacific, there's often quite a long time lag between the reporter's eyewitness accounts making it back to the home office in California or Chicago or New York. And so for the bosses back in these major cities, they do put many of their senior reporters in the big command centres. So in the Pacific War, it's Brisbane, it's wherever MacArthur is, but it's Brisbane, it's Hawaii in particular. And so a lot of the reports that you see on page one each day is what I refer to as war by communique. And it's only over time that the actual eyewitness reports make it back. That time lag narrows as the war comes to an end. And interestingly, the Battle of Iwo Jima, which becomes remarkably famous for the famous Rosenthal photograph of the flag raising on Mount Suribachi, that particular battle, and part of the reason why those images have such an impact, is the communications are so good by early 1945, those images can be developed and relayed back to America, given the time zone changes on the day of battle. And so actually the New York Times makes a big thing of this, that Rosenthal's early photographs of the actual landing on Iwo Jima 
were actually seen by the American home front the day that they were taken. The New York Times talks about this as the miracles of modern transmission. Domestic home fronts weren't used to actually seeing battles in real time. I talk about, in my earlier book on the European war, there's one radio broadcast by George Hicks, which makes it back to New York on D-Day. And so actually, for the first time, really, the American home front can hear the sound of combat, the first time since the Blitz of 1940 that you can actually hear combat. So seeing combat and hearing combat are only things that become possible in 1944 and 45. But that is a major change and it shifts towards the sort of modern era that we get to, of course, where the home front almost demands images in real time. Sounds like a watershed moment to me because you're absolutely right. We had John Nicholl on the podcast the other week, who was shot down in the first few days of the Gulf War in 1991. And he was saying that, you know, the Gulf War was a war that was almost made for TV. And those at home got the reports of things that were happening in the war before they got official reports of things that were happening. What had a massive effect on the families. Was this something that had a big impact back home in the US as well? As you're able to get these images from the landings, from the beaches, the successes that are happening, does this lift morale in the US or does it conflict with official narratives? I think from Roosevelt's sort of very lofty position, one of the things that Roosevelt is concerned about, and I've actually argued this in one of my earlier books, Roosevelt's approach to a lot of wartime leadership is he sees his role as trying to sort of smooth out the peaks and the troughs. But so in 1942 in particular, when there's a whole series of defeats, the job is to try and demonstrate to the public that actually things aren't going that badly. He doesn't want everyone to be overly pessimistic. Likewise, particularly in 1943-44, one of the key moments actually in the war is when Mussolini is ousted. And there's a real sort of sense that, oh, Mussolini's ousted, the axis is cracking, World War II will end like World War I with a revolution in Germany and and Hitler will be ousted. And so there are a lot of opinion polls suggesting in the late months of 1943 that Americans think the war will be over by Christmas. And so what Roosevelt therefore does is generate a publicity campaign which is very much focused on how difficult it's going to be to end the war. We're a long way from victory. This is going to be a long, hard struggle. And so what happens, the Battle of Tarai in November 1943 which is really the first major amphibious operation by the new US Navy. But it's a massively bloody. A thousand Americans are killed in a matter of hours. What Roosevelt goes out of his way to do, and he's aware that there are these fantastic, these horrific images, Roosevelt sanctions their release. And there's the famous US Marines film with the Marines at Tarawa, which shows some of the most gory, horrific images of war, actually, in some respects, worse than they're ever seen, even in the Vietnam War, where we're used to thinking about TV bringing in the horrors of war to the living room. That newsreel, which is publicised by Roosevelt's behest in March 1944, really does portray war in very, very horrific terms, but it's done with a clear propaganda motive, and that is to try and demonstrate to the home front that this is going to be a long, bloody war. The casualty lists are going to continue to mount. We've got to really sort of prepare ourselves for this long bloody conflict and that I think is a very interesting aspect to Roosevelt's leadership and that's one of the few times he does actually involve himself with the military publicity side of the conflict.
Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I never really thought about it like that. I suppose you're right. Victriol can be a little bit of a dangerous thing. It starts to make you think the war is over. Maybe you don't have to keep up the same levels of rationing or the same levels of production. Or to, you know, make sure that you don't uh, start gossiping, spreading rumours, telling secrets. It can be a dangerous thing to think that you've won a battle. Of course, 1944 as well, the big difference between Britain and the United States, of course, is that elections continue in the United States. And 1944 is an election year now, some of the most interesting private polling that Roosevelt has commissioned throughout 1944 is if the war is still going on in November, how will you vote? And there's massive majorities in favour of the incumbent, in favour of re-electing Roosevelt for an unprecedented fourth term. If, however, the war is over by November 1944, there's quite a large majority in favour of whoever the Republicans nominate. Now, I don't think that does ultimately have any impact on Roosevelt's central fact of the matter is by 1944 the strategic decisions at the top level have been made and the war is sort of rumbling on but it's quite interesting actually how political motive can sometimes come in I don't think in this war but in perhaps other wars you can see unscrupulous political leaders (laughs) operating in various ways on the basis of either victory or defeat Oh, well, you've made the point I was about to make even more disturbing now, because I was going to say it has some parallels with our current crisis. The idea that, you know, we thought we'd come out the worst of COVID. And as a result, you know, masks come off, we start to relax a little bit. There was victory 
over the coronavirus. And then you start to move to a stage where the Delta variant comes in and inevitably, who knows what the future holds, but it looks like it's not as positive as we first thought. But then you start bringing in this political meddling at the back and it makes me wonder what other games are at play, Stephen. I think the way out, and there's very little documentation about this, and this is not a new point made in the book, but one of MacArthur's most preeminent biographers sort of alludes to this. In the Pacific War, one of the big issues in 1944, and it's a preeminent issue, is is the United States going to prioritise MacArthur, who's essentially coming from New Guinea and up to the south, or is it going to prioritise a Navy who are coming up through the Central Pacific? And that's sort of jostling for resources. And that's overlain with a major... One of Roosevelt's only real political vulnerabilities in the war is this whole idea that he's focusing on Germany first. And the Republicans say, well, no, Japan is the main enemy. Japan is the one that's attacked Pearl Harbor. We should be focusing on Japan. So MacArthur does liaise with Republicans and there's this constant rumbling below the surface throughout the war that Roosevelt has chosen the wrong track. Now, the way in which perhaps Roosevelt sort of squares the circle in 1944 is he goes all the way to Hawaii to meet with MacArthur and Nimitz in July. Now, MacArthur's biographer sort of alludes to the fact that there probably was some sort of deal done, whereas Roosevelt throws his weight behind MacArthur and MacArthur's desperate desire to return to the Philippines. And then MacArthur, who never had any liking for Franklin Roosevelt, MacArthur not only tones down any of his criticism of the president, but when the Philippines are invaded just weeks before Election Day, MacArthur and the first week of the invasion aren't particularly great for the United States, but MacArthur does issue a whole series of over-optimistic communiques, which does Roosevelt's re-election chances no harm, because Roosevelt publicly states in one of his last campaign addresses... Well, Republicans have been talking about the fact that I've neglected the Pacific. Well, how can you make that point? Now I've given MacArthur the resources to invade the Philippines. And so that basically just seals the deal for Roosevelt and he is re-elected in 1944. So that's, I think, the way in which perhaps this plays out in a different way. But yeah, the bottom line actually is in war you're dealing with, not presidents and generals necessarily, but politicians and political generals. And so you can never really divorce that side of the equation from the calculations. Politicians and political generals. Political generals. What a term that is. I mean, we've had a number of those over the last five years or so that have merged from the world of the military into their own political ambitions. And it's certainly something that isn't going to go away. And something we shouldn't neglect from our understanding of the history of war as well. But we're here to talk about some of these war reporters. And I'm just wondering if you're able to illuminate some of these personal stories for us. Who were the people that most captivated you as you were going through the archives? I assume you were reading their diaries, going through their step-by-step moments of the campaigns. Which ones stuck with you? Obviously, when you're dealing with the European war, you can't get beyond Ernie Pyle. But Ernie doesn't end up in the Pacific until late 44, early 45, and is tragically then killed in the Okinawa campaign. So close to the end of the war. So close to the end of the war and a real sort of tragic end. But it also underlines the point that you made a little bit earlier, which is actually how much more dangerous the Pacific War. The two sort of biggest figures that make the transition from Europe to the Pacific, Ernie Pyle and Homer Bigart of the New York Herald Tribune. Both of them, even before Ernie is killed, both of them remark upon just actually how much more dangerous the Pacific War is. 
in part because actually the front is often not quite so easy to identify. And so both of them have reported in Italy for a long period of time. Both of them have been at the Anzio beachhead, which was hardly a sort of soft posting. But there was something a, bit, a little bit more predictable about combat. I think it was the unpredictable nature of combat in the Pacific that they, I think, found particularly unnerving when they made the transition. The figures I got quite interested in, the Chicago Tribune, actually, I think, was a news organisation that was particularly interesting. Because what you have before Pearl Harbour is this very vicious newspaper war in Chicago between the Chicago Tribune, which is essentially, this is simplifying, essentially a Republican-supporting newspaper, which is also isolationist and vehemently anti-Roosevelt and opposed to America intervening in the war. And the Chicago Daily News, which is also Republican-leaning, but is also interventionist. And as I pointed out earlier, Frank Knox is made Roosevelt's Secretary of the Navy, which makes the Chicago Tribune even more hostile towards what's going on. And so you get this continuation of the newspaper war into 1942 and 43 in particular. The Tribune has on its roster some fantastic reporters. Perhaps the most famous one, and there's been some brilliant work done on him. For those of you listening back home, Steve is in his office, a beautiful book-lined office, which any academic would be proud of, and he's searching around for a book. By Elliot Carlson, I was trying to remember the author's name, Elliot Carlson, on Stanley Johnston. And Stanley Johnston is a particularly interesting figure. He becomes the key Chicago Tribune reporter in Hawaii in 1942, after Pearl Harbour. And Stanley Johnston goes out with the Navy and witnesses the Battle of the Coral Sea. He's on the aircraft carrier that is sunk in that battle. He survives. He makes the long journey back to California. And as he's making the long journey back to California, he and it still remains controversial exactly how he comes across the information, but he comes across the information that the US Navy has broken the Japanese codes and the US Navy has advanced knowledge of a Japanese plan to attack Midway. By the time that Johnston gets all the way back to Chicago in early June and he's writing up his stories on the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Navy revealed that America has enjoyed a major success at Midway. Now, Johnston and his editor put two and two together and think, ah, the reason for the success is that the Navy's had advance warning. And a couple of days after the battle, the front page of the Chicago Tribune says, US Navy has advance warning of this battle. And for the US Navy, which is, as I mentioned earlier, already super sensitive about any security breaches, any inkling that the Navy has broken the Japanese codes, and that's the reason for this massive naval success, any inkling of that drives Admiral King absolutely apoplectic with rage. And you get a major investigation. The US Navy would quite like to invoke the Espionage Act and prosecute Stanley Johnston and his newspaper. But again, that prosecution might unveil the secret of the code breaking, so they pause. But what they try and do instead is point out that actually Johnston is Australian background. He'd fought in the First World War for Australia. He'd spent time covering the Battle of Britain in Britain. He had a German wife and a German family, which in 1942 wasn't necessarily the greatest thing to have. And so you get quite a lot of 
rumours being spread behind the scenes that perhaps Stanley Johnston was a major security risk and there's quite a, an effort behind the scenes. The FBI gets involved to perhaps blacken his reputation. Um, to cut a long story short, the administration never prosecutes. The Chicago Tribune gets away with this, but Johnston, of course, never covers the US Navy ever again. And it's a, a further reason why the Navy takes a lot longer to start relaxing its attitude towards reporters than it might otherwise have done. So I think that's a very interesting story. The other interesting story with the Tribune is that while you've got this troublemaker with the Navy, you've also got Al Nodera, who is reporting with MacArthur in New Guinea. And he was the reporter who I found who kept sort of the best day-to-day diary of exactly what it was like to actually make it to the front lines in New Guinea in 1942. And because the Tribune was not only sort of hostile to the Navy, it was also because it was anti-Roosevelt, pro-MacArthur. Nodera gets quite a lot of access to MacArthur. He's one of only two reporters who actually make it to the front line to cover MacArthur's first major success at the end of 1942 around Boona. But just the sheer horrific nature of trying to make it to the front. The Japanese are pretty much the last of your problems. It's the weather. It's the bugs. It's the horrific nature of plane journeys. It's the fact that many of these planes aren't really fit for service in 1942. It's the difficulty of even taking a boat. You might be finally then shot on by the Japanese. But there were so many difficulties of just getting to the front. And then once you finally got to the front, trying to piece together what was actually happening in a confused battle through teeming rain was very, very difficult. But then, of course, there was no real way of getting the story back all the way to Brisbane. So that whole struggle was, I think, a fascinating sort of insight of the day-to-day difficulties of the working journalist and a real sort of insight into the bravery, the courage, the perseverance, but ultimately the enormous frustration of reporting this war. I mean, you just try and turn to your sergeant on the left or your lieutenant further back and try and ask what's going on in the battle. I mean, they're going to be confused. So just turning up on the day in the middle of the battle on the front line, you've got to be pretty talented to try and pull all of this together. And also, you've got to go right along the front line, I assume, to try and talk to many different people to create a broader tapestry of what the hell is going on. Yeah, and I think what they inevitably end up resulting to, and that's why, going back to this difference between the war being reported in headquarters by communique, that tends to sort of try and piece together sort of success or failure, where the battle's going. What these reporters on the front line inevitably sort of end up doing is reporting human interest stories. They find a particularly colourful personality at the front who might have made particular gains or killed a large number of the enemy, and they tend to sort of base a story around that. That also, when the story does finally make it back to headquarters, that tends to get through the censors much more readily as well. So one of the themes about the book, actually, ultimately, is that, for lots of reasons, this is largely a war that America's experiencing on the home front, written by American reporters about American troops and their sort of human interest stories. That's also really what the home front wants to hear. That's why Ernie Parr is so successful. I think that helps to negate some of these problems. The stories also then don't go stale. One of the things that, of course, newspapers are trying to do is to say what's happening day by day. If it's taking you three weeks to get your story back, 
it's old hat whether or not this particular battle's taken place. What you do in order to try and make sure that story doesn't get stale is write about the human interest angle. What actually is life like for the average GI at the front? Early Pahl success grows out of that sort of discovery in 1942, and he has lots of emulators, in part because of just the practical difficulties of frontline reporting. But these people have the power to decide who is going to be that next war hero. This is where the war heroes are born. People like Sergeant John Bassalone, who the entire of the HBO series The Pacific is kind of engineered around. And then these people are plucked out if they're popular back home and sent back and become celebrities. So these war reporters kind of have the power to make people famous and to remove them from the front lines. Exactly, yes. And so there's lots of sort of interesting dynamics that are going on. I think that definitely is the case. And of course, the other downside of all of that is that, of course, big chunks of the army or big chunks of the navy feel very much forgotten and neglected. One of the things that Ernie Pyle is particularly good at is that he does go around writing human interest stories on the less glamorous, the engineers, the people engaged in logistics. And that buys him huge amounts of brownie points. And actually, interestingly, the army is quite content to... Because there is also that problem of morale. One of the ways in which censorship is gradually eased over the course of the war, and there's always big debates, is when should the order of battle be released? When should the censorship stop on naming specific units in battle? Because, of course, there is a big operation. You don't want to reveal to the enemy exactly what units you've got. But by the same token, these units want their families and friends back home to know exactly where they are. So that's also a process that's going on. And also you get other parts of the war which are much less glamorous. The big sort of almost forgotten battle both in Britain and America is the battle in Burma that's ongoing. And so the War Department does try and go out of its way. The chapter on the CBI theatre starts out with the War Department actually actively instructing all of its PR, public relations officials, to build up General Steelwell. There's a real sense that Steelwell is losing the publicity battle vis-a-vis MacArthur and the Navy and Eisenhower and the Air Force. And actually, it's not just building up Steelwell, but making sure that these troops that are out in that part of the world don't feel neglected because their morale is going to suffer. So there's also that side of the equation that is also important as the war develops. And the more they were reported on, the more they've endured in history. There's a reason why we know these names and we don't know the names of other people. They have, well, history is written by the victors, as we know, and they were the ones writing the history. Yeah, and the ones that are remembered. And I think another sort of related point to that, of course, is that as military historians are trying to recreate battles, one of the challenges, actually, of writing the book was you have to be interested in this relationship between the media on the one hand and the military on the other. Now, the military records that come and the military stories tend to be very, very dry. They're very sort of bullet point, stating the very bald facts. Whereas, of course, war correspondents, their whole skill is to try and bring a bit of colour. And actually, so one of the challenges of writing this book is to try and make sure it's not uneven, that the bits that are talking about the military aren't just reflecting the sort of dull, dry military memos and the bits that are dealing with the war correspondence aren't reflecting their quite colourful diary entries. But actually, it always staggered me how some of these reporters that make it to the front lines, and in New Guinea, for instance, 
No one bothered bringing a typewriter because the typewriters, it was raining so heavily, typewriters just didn't work. They were having to write it down. But in many places, of course, they are sitting down there. The artillery is so strong that the typewriters bouncing on their knees. They probably haven't slept for the past four days since they've learnt where they're going to be landing because they've been terrified. They finally survived. They've seen huge amounts of death and destruction. They're just trying to find this perhaps figure that they can hook the story around. But it's almost incredible that they can produce any written prose. As an historian who tries to write from the safety of my bookline study, we all know how difficult it is to write anything. But for these characters to actually produce what is sometimes very vivid accounts of battles, minutes or hours after they've taken place, in the most gruelling of conditions, that for me was always one of the real, really astonishing. Just the quality of just some of these dispatches really is astonishing. Absolutely. There's no time for writer's block there. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for bringing this history to us. These personal stories of bravery, but also highlighting that, you know, for me, a new aspect of the political power they held as well, and just how important this reporting was. Where can people read more about this history? I say on my own two books, The War Beat Europe, which came out in 2017, and The War Beat Pacific, which is only just published, they're really actually an outgrowth of a couple of decades of writing about this from different angles. Interestingly, I got interested in the whole issue of war reporting when I wrote a book about a decade or so on the Korean War called Selling the Korean War. And a lot of work on propaganda in war deals with just the civilian side. So it's basically the president and the propagandists back in America trying to say, sort of, why do we fight? What are the great ideological reasons why America fights? Or defining the evil nature of the enemy. There's a large literature on that. But as I was writing about the Korean War, and obviously being very much aware of the literature on Vietnam, where the war reporting is widely believed to have sort of weakened domestic support for the war. And I actually came to the conclusion that in the Korean War as well, it was the images of the war itself, the images of battles, of death and destruction, that were vitally important in shaping how the home front saw the war. That was really how I got interested in going back. MacArthur doesn't institute censorship in the Korean War for the first six months. He does when China intervenes. And when he does, the press go crazy. They say, your censorship rules are far too onerous. And MacArthur says, well, they're exactly the same rules that I used five years ago in the Pacific, and no one minded then. And I went back in about 2006 to try and work out whether or not MacArthur was telling the truth. And I found that actually there was very little written on World War II and the military relationship with the media and these war correspondents. And so that's really where I've come at this from. It's part of a sort of ongoing decade, 15-year project of just trying to uncover not just these reporters' stories and how and why they get written, but also their impact on the home front and their impact on the politics, both the inter-service rivalries, but also sometimes on the party politics of the United States. Well, Stephen, I'm so glad you have written those histories. I couldn't recommend them more. I know you're working on loads of new projects at the moment to do with British history as well, so we'll get you back on the Warfare podcast soon. Many thanks indeed, James. Many thanks indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.